The following is a sponsored program on WBT. All right, the Carolina Outdoors is in session. Come on in. The listening is fine. Bill Barty on the left-hand side of your radio dial. Wes Lawson on the right. Well, we're talking about fishing, so maybe it's uh, starboard and port. You want to do that instead? Uh, Let's do do that. that. All right, we could do uh, 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, all of those things. Welcome, everyone, the Carolina Outdoors right here. We're going to delve outside of the boundaries of the Carolinas and head down to the coast of Florida right now and get a little bit closer to some saltwater. This is where the heartbeat of saltwater fly fishing exists in America, and we're going to learn what's happening all over Florida, but especially in... In the Miami area and down into the Florida Keys. The uh, PBS recently, Wes, I don't know if you saw it, aired Hemingway, the documentary by Ken Burns on the novelist Papa Hemingway. You know, I sure did. You know, his fishing boat, the Pilar, you can find that uh, or a replica thereof down in the Keys. Well, we're going to head that way. He hung out all over the Keys, Spain, Cuba, of course, as well. Um, but also, many of his articles helped bring fly, saltwater fly fishing into vogue in the 40s and in the 50s. And we've got new blood in fly fishing right now. And we're going to bring one of them on to the Carolina outdoors as we welcome John Antonano. John, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Wes. It's great to have this opportunity to be with you guys. You know, John, I bet you never thought you'd be referred to as new blood in fly fishing or fishing in general. You've been doing this for just a minute or two. When did you first really get into to fishing, especially saltwater fishing? Uh, I actually grew up in New York City, and so my first experience was when I had the opportunity with my grandfather and my father to go flounder fishing on St. Paddy's Day. So we go fish uh, Jamaica Bay, then we go fish some other areas. And as I grew up, we moved from New York City out to the east end of Long Island, Nassau County. Then I started feeling my way around this, the freshwater lakes and ponds. So a friend of mine said, hey, let's go take a ride over to Long Beach by bicycle. So we trekked like five or six miles to Long Beach, and we started fishing off the jetties. And that's when we first started cutting our teeth on bluefish weak fish, and striped bass. Then I started with that and say, oh, this could be interesting to do with a fly rod. As I proceeded to do that, knew nothing about it. It was up and coming in the early part of the 70s. And as I broke several rods that I made, it's like, I got to go learn this. And that's how we started. You had, usually had a mentor to, to play with. There was a bunch of people that we were following at that time frame. Uh, probably the two most outstanding individuals was Joe Brooks and Luffy Cray. Yeah, two two names, two le- two legends. You know, if if you if you don't know these folks, Lefty Cray, of course, probably considered you know the greatest of all time, or certainly one of them, one of the most influential in in fly fishing, especially in saltwater fly fishing. But then you you moved down the coast a little bit and really got into some pretty serious saltwater fishing once you got to Florida. Yeah, I had the opportunity for some uh, job prospects to fish on both the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast. So with my real job being in the energy sector, I wound up playing in the Miami area and the Homosassa Crystal area, Crystal River area for topping. And uh, when you don't have any bonefish on the Gulf side, but we do have the largest concentration of large tarpon, giant tarpon, from Homosassa down to Bayport. 
so then I, like I said, we started doing this, and ironically, uh, the fly fishing started to evolve. Then you had people like Bill Curtis, uh, you had some other guys, uh, Johnny Elmer, then you had some other gentlemen that were on the cutting edge, Stu App, uh, all, all these legends that started doing things, Chico Fernandez, Flip Pallet, they all started in the late, late 60s and moved their way into the 70s. I just happened, happily be lucky enough to get mentored by Chico at one, at one point in my career, and then also by Lefty Craig, who I wound up meeting and fishing with Bob Clouser when I was up in the, in Pennsylvania, smallmouth fishing one time. But the giant tarpon right now, uh, tarpon fishing in Florida has been very good, along with the bonefish. So, so whereabouts? Give us kind of your 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 spots to go, and just so you know, and our listeners out there, we are airing via the airwaves of WBT Radio early on a Saturday morning, and you have listeners, your old neighbors up in New York, can hear you loud and clear via those airwaves, especially all the way down south to Florida as well. So you are speaking to them, but also the world via podcast at Carolina Outdoors. So, John. Tell us, if you're talking to your friends in Florida, the Carolinas, or all the way up to New York, um, where are the hot spots of fishing in your area, and what's biting? Okay, right now I've had the opportunity to go play with uh, some tarpon and bonefish that's been extremely hot these last two, the last two weeks down in the Key Biscayne, Miami area. There's a number of good guys guides that have been been active. Uh, the flies have been working extremely well. The weather's been cooperating. Now, down in the Miami Key Biscayne area, uh, the fish are fairly large. They're running between 85 to 120 pounds. The bonefish are averaging between four and six. And when you come up onto a flat, you're seeing the bonefish tailing. So the permit were good up until about a week ago, and now the big permit are, are, are offshore um, spawning, and right now continuing to be hot in the Miami area. Down further, like you go down about another 30, 40 miles, you start hitting Key Largo all the way down to Marathon. The Oceanside Tarpon are just starting, and we're all waiting for the infamous worm hatch. The worm hatch is going to happen around the first full moon uh, towards the, the end of May, beginning of June. That's when the palmetto worms start coming out, and then all of the worm flies start looking at, looking and activating and triggering these fish to eat it enormously for two or three days straight. Well, the, and so for you know, listeners, if you aren't familiar with this, the saltwater worm, the palillo worm, is fairly endemic just to this one specific area and it is uh unless you like worms it's kind of an odd thing to see a worm hatch in salt water but the tarpon go absolutely crazy and john that's basically down to about marathon right yeah basically the only we concentrate on is from island Morada down to marathon it's something to catch um, when you move up to the northeast, into the New York area, all the way up to Massachusetts, that's called a cinder worm hatch. And you find them in days and estuaries between late, late spring and, early, and then early fall. Uh, different type of worms, but it still, it, it still draws the fish in. But the phenomenal worm hatch down in uh, the Keys concentrates literally just two, two to three days on the making of the worms coming out of the coral heads and the, and the bottom. What they do, they just rise up, and what we try to do is, is imitate, match the hatch like we do in freshwater of these palmetto worms. And they can be anywhere from two and a half to three inches in length. The idea is the fish are trying, are concentrating on them so much 
during the full moon area at times. Um, it's going to be hit on this to get up with a fly. Um, the last year was kind of uh, nice. Uh, it sounds a little bad, but with the pandemic, the keys were locked out unless you were a resident. And I got down there for three days, and we actually were testing some new flies, worm flies. And the fishing, the fishing was just phenomenal for the simple reason it was on a cusp of, a full, of, the, last, of the last full moon for May, June. And we had like four days of solid worm fishing. I think maybe with the guys, it maybe it been a total of like 25 of us playing. Oh, you got uh, you, you you John. I, I got to jump in because I didn't say this. You're also the owner of Ocean Flies USA, which is custom world class uh, flies that you tie and have tied um, that catch many of these fish. And we have them at Jesse Brown's, including redfish patterns for the Carolina coast as well, um, and Louisiana. If you're heading down there for redfish, that sort of thing. But will you delve into detail with what you're talking about right now and the importance of matching the hatch fly choice as you said does the color does the size of the fly when you're down there and the fish are on does it really matter and then if so how are you making it matter okay on a worm hatch it does matter the worm hatch we're playing with tans and reds pinks and ironically some chartreuse and brown flies they're very small uh, the normal flies that we're fishing with, depending on what color bottom you're on, on a sand bottom or over a weed grass bottom, uh, we're playing with grizzlies, which is basically the black and white saddles with either a tan head, orange head, or we move to an all orange fly with a bunny on black and purple, which is ideal, or chartreuse and yellow. Again, toad, uh, top and toads seem to be working as well. But the worm flies, we kind of trying to mimic the worm. You really have to look at the worm live and see it's actually like a, a light tannish with a pink head. So we try to imitate that. Uh, yet, yesterday we were, they were out there. I did send a couple of, a couple dozen flies down to a couple one of our guides, and they were hitting on all orange. Don't ask me why. The next the day before they were hitting on all tan. So the fish could be very finicky. You got you got to see how the fish are reacting. If you cast in front of the fish and you lead them correctly, and you're stripping, and he's found they're following it, they're going to eat it. If they ner- come up to it on a nose and turn it up. They don't want it. That's what I wanted to so get at a little bit. I, I wanted to get at that uh, delivery and presentation versus the, uh, a right on fly. Because you know, many of us, if we get, if you get a trouter down there, um, a trout fisherman or something who's who's used to casting one way, and now the requirement is to be in Florida and to pull out that big gun and and cast further with more precision. But then we might mess up a cast. We might blow a cast. Um, Will those flies help us make that deficiency up, in your opinion? Yeah, yes. Um, I get a fair amount of of people coming transferring over from the freshwater zone to the saltwater. The only thing I asked them, I said, please don't bring your five, six, seven and you chase them top. And they, they're really good for you know, bonefish and redfish, but the top, and I said a minimum of 10 weights to, a, to an ideal of a 12. Lines do make a difference. That is, that is one thing I will stipulate, and you've got to be actually able to cast at least 50 feet. That gives you and your guide a boundary so you know how, how far out the fish are. 
sometimes there'll be daisy training where they're going nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail in a circle. And then you, you cast to the, the one right or left side of that daisy chain, and you will pull a fish out. Oh, that's my kind of fish right now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to John Antonano. He's the owner of Ocean Flies USA, a custom world-class fly organization with Wes Lawson. I'm Bill Barty on the Carolina Outdoors. Well, you know, John, you're talking about daisy chaining, and sometimes it can be hard. You've been you've been amped up all day, you know, casting for these guys, and I don't care if it's a hundred pound tarpon or a four pound bonefish or a redfish in the slot. Sometimes when you see them daisy chain like that, it can almost be hard to react because it's so incredible to see, and we've been on on our toes the whole time. But then, you know, my experience has been using your flies and others that. You throw one of those things out, like that crab that you had that we've got in the store is like fishing artwork, and it's so close to real that you know, I'm, I'm a pretty decent at 50 feet kind of caster. I, I can hold my own, but no one's going to make a movie about it. But you get that right fly out there, it really makes a difference. And one of the things maybe you could talk about is there are two kinds of flies made, flies that are designed for our eyes to buy and flies that are designed for fish's eyes to buy. How do you determine you know, the materials that you use? Because you have a lot of really highly specialized materials, some of which you have patents on. Talk about that for a minute or two. Oh, sure. Uh, thanks for the kind words. Um, the, when you start playing in, in with the top of flies, I, I stay mostly with a lot of natural feathers and saddles and hackles. Uh, that's the tail end of it. Uh, your, your, your grizzlies in black and white, uh, yellow and black, chartreuse and black, or tan, uh, what we call ginger, is uh, like a, a light ginger and black. Usually I stick a bucktail, bucktail material underneath that in between the two, two or four feathers saddled, and then the top or the head of the fly can either be Malibu or sometimes we use some synthetics. Uh, the redfish lines, basically, they're mostly the same way. I like to use a lot of marabou or mix in a lot of uh, what we call ocean, ocean fibers, which is uh, a slightly shahishin, water-resistant water, uh, Type of material that we it just came we just came up with it just out, out, of, out of actually as of an accident. Uh, it's equivalent to other materials that are on the market. However, it, what we found out it just as uh, the casting it just shakes off the water a little more. So the flies really depends on what quarry you're moving after. I stay all natural ninety nine percent of the time. We're talking. Uh, when you get into ocean collegiates like uh, bluefin tuna, sharks, or anything like that, then you could go to some fibers, or you could go to a mixture of both the natural feathers, the saddle, and the marble. The what you want to do for the for the sight for the fish, the fish like to look at color, depending on the water quality and where you are. Redfish, uh, they like browns, blacks, uh, quans. Hands, things of that nature. Bonefish, bonefish are real good. This, this whole last two weeks, we've been taking bonefish up on pinks, purples, and tan flies, shrimp flies, and patterns. So the crabs, the crabs are kind of unique because the crabs you can make one or two ways. Uh, the current crab that we're handling now, uh, especially in two parts, 
and he comes in the natural color of tandem, we color them. Or what we move to is we're moving to yard yard uh, rug yarn or more again some of our fibers. Again, mixed in with either marabou feathers and or some saddles. Let me add a little flash to it as well, just just to give it a, when you're twitching and stripping it, just to pick up the sight of it. Now I know the Carolina the Carolina Rentos have come up with a Having success with the call Dirty Harry fly, we kind of mimic, it, mimic that with a different one. We call it the, the Redfish Worm, and basically all we're trying to do is mimic a worm, but we just add a, a lot more flash on it. And I think we've been pretty successful from uh, the coast of North Carolina to Virginia on the, on the Red Drum and the Redfish. Well, we've got a bunch of those flies for people who are listening to the Carolina Outdoors to be able to sneak over to Jesse Brown's, where Wes and I hang our hat through the week and see. These Ocean Flies USA that are custom tied by John Antonano, our guest. John, I was glad to hear about the health of the bonefish population down there, too. We are going to have to get you back on another time to learn more about that because those fish had been down a little bit big, but lower in numbers. It sounds like the bonefish are coming back strong down there in Florida. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Carolina Outdoors. Oh, I want to thank both Bill, you and Wes for everything that you know the opportunity to present and to be part of your team. Give us out. It's an honor to be part of Jesse Brown's. Give us that. Uh, give us that Instagram handle so we can jump over there and check it out. At Flats Guy. At Flats Guy, everybody, check him out. Get some good flies. We got him in the store at Jesse Brown's. His name John Antonano. His name Wes Lawson. My name Bill Barty. We're the outdoor guys from Jesse Brown's.